When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm Rolling Stone executive editor Nathan Brackett. Today we're going to talk about the greatest punk albums of all time, which is on the cover of the new issue. But first, we're going to talk about what we're listening to. I have John Dolan. What's up, John? How you doing? And Brittany Spanos. Hey. Hey. And uh, we have a great trio of songs right now. Mm -hmm. We're going to start with a song from a, a group named Whitney. John, you brought this one to the table. Sure, they're a band from, I think, Chicago, sort of also maybe now by way of L.A. a little bit. but It's a member of the Smith Western. That's right. right? We're a kind of a garage band um, from a few years back. They put out three albums, um, started playing together as teenagers, and kind of had a bleached-out sound that sometimes would imply 60s garage rock, but also maybe a little like if John Lennon's later post-Beatles stuff sounded like George Harrison's post-Beatles stuff, so they had this echoey <laughs> right. kind of like, you know, but, right. but and real catchy. The Smith um, Westerns definitely had a moment. They had a yeah, lot of buzz, yeah. They, they really did. Now this record is sort of what happens a few years later, maybe, where you kind of, they've begun their kind of back-to-the-land, right. beardly <laughs> kind a, of A phase. little bit of a hangover record. Maybe but, a little bit, yeah. But also, like, it's kind of like a ray of sunshine, this song. It is. It's pretty. They talk, he talks about, you know, he's drinking on the train, going out, you know, leaving Chicago on the city train and out to the country, and it's got that kind of, like, when you're, you know, they're listening to the band a lot, you can tell, and Bobby Charles and things like that, and it's kind right. of got that going to Woodstock kind of element to it, and they do it nicely. It's a cute song. Well, let's, let's play a little bit. It's called Golden Days. Total like kind of AM seventies yeah. radio vibe, a little chugling happening. And yeah, yeah, chugling. Kind of, yeah. yeah, it really reminded me of um, Ooh La La by the Faces, and kind oh, of yeah. I have this like Wes Anderson sort of vibe from it. But it totally reminded me of like early seventies like rock country pop ish radio. So yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, they've been listening to America a little bit on the tour bus, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> That's, That's what happens. Yeah, it, happens. it does. <laughs> when the buzz fades, fade. <laughs> right. and then you totally. find a new chapter. Out of the garage and into the barn. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> The next song is from someone a little older. Uh, Paul Simon is back. He's got a new album. The new album is called Stranger to Stranger, and it is another, it sounds like at least, everything about it implies another great Paul Simon record. His last record, So Beautiful, So What, was from 2012. It was fantastic. This one, he worked with an Italian producer named Clap Clap, who he learned about from one of his kids. And the song you has... got to listen to the kids. Yeah, you do. <laughs> absolutely. And, and uh, the song has kind of that classic Paul Simon mix of, you know, it's a little more dissonant, but it's got this sort of rhythm as the big focus. And he's one of those singer-songwriters who always makes rhythm really important. Yeah, for sure. I mean, mm-hmm. like, as kind of a 70 or 60-something, I mean, and, and going back to the Graceland record, but kind of late in life, like, you know, Paul Simon became like a groove guy. Yeah. And he's totally stuck with that. I mean, but, you know, even going back to, like, his first, you know, like, Mother and Child Reunion was one of yeah. the first reggae. To, you know, he's always kind of had that in a way, and he's always thought that rhythm is as important as melody and lyrics. And this is a one of those examples, and the song itself is uh, real clever. It's kind of sung from the perspective of basically him or some kind of singer-songwriter who's playing a show, and he's 
trying to get backstage to get to his band and, and get going. And there's this he went out big, to have a cigarette, right? right. Yeah, yeah. which kind of reminds you of late in the evening when that, that song from 1980 where he is you know goes out and smokes himself a J after a show and kind of has an echo of that. But he goes at this time he comes that time it's a great time. This time he comes back and the guy's like you can't come back in. You know you maybe you're maybe you're a fan maybe you're someone who's at the show. But she was like no my band's over there. It's like a kind of a sitcom moment. I'm gonna have to walk around the block if I wanna get in a wristband, my man. You got to have a wristband. You know, he's complaining about it, and he opens up the song later on to talk about kind of this, you know, anti-1% thing, about how, like, there's people all over the world who will never have a chance to have any kind of wristband at all, and it's kind of like calling this guy's kind of narcissism and complaint on its shallowness and talking about sort of giving it kind of a global perspective, which has also been something he's been so good at for all these years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it kind of starts as this kind of cute old rock guy story and ends yeah. with riots in the streets, exactly. yeah. which is awesome. Yeah, it is. Kids that can't afford the cool brand. It just sounds so fresh. It doesn't sound like he's doing too much trying to be like a lot of his old material. It just sounds like a cool, fresh. It does. Yeah. He's never, these are, it's new sounds for him. It's mm-hmm. totally true. Yeah, I mean, Paul Simon is one guy who can always bring it. There are definitely some veteran artists who are happy to just focus on their live mm-hmm. show and maybe put out an album every once in a while, but Paul Simon does not. Does not does not do anything lightly. <laughs> he's still restless after all these. You know, he's like, yeah. you know, how old is he? He's it is late. late he's gonna be seventy five. Yeah. yeah, and and still sort of like trying to find new sounds and new stories to tell, which is pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then Brittany, you uh, brought a new track from Schoolboy Q. Yeah, he just released this new song called Groovy Tony, which is really in the vein of the whole hip hop's relationship with the movie Scarface and Tony Montana. And the song and the video, he released them last week, and it's just, like, this very, like, noirish, um, super gritty video. is like, crazy, just, like, him roaming through the streets and leaving, like, a trail of bodies. And it's, like, the song itself is just so, it's, like, it flows so perfectly. It's just, like, incredibly catchy and fun. Tony, no face killer, I see the money ride. Oh, yeah, the track is awesome. Yeah. It's based on like an old Christine McVie solo sample. Yeah. <laughs> I read that on genius.com. Yeah. Uh, I mean, like at this point, like if you're a rapper doing a song where it, which is based on like drug dealing or Tony Montana, it's almost like doing, I don't know, if you were like a folk artist playing like yes. an old, you know, a, a, a traditional old, track, exactly. you know, but like yeah. he makes it into something new. It's just about the vibe. Yeah, the vibe is like super Sin City-ish and very like Tarantino, Robert Rodriguez kind of movie-ish, like with the video and with the song itself. And he just like, his flow is always incredible and it's great to hear. But yeah. And there's an album <laughs> coming at some point? He hasn't announced too much about it, but I think he has a follow-up to Oxymoron coming out this year. All right. Yeah. It uh, kind of reminds you of kind of the clips, except more unhinged. Like towards the end, it distorts and his voice distorts mm-hmm. and it's just... And it's, like, yeah, he, he was, takes it to a weird place. He yeah. kind of, the way he sings, the, the sort of, he talks about like, I want the money and he kind of has this, he changes his voice and he, it's 
you know, his music is always kind of grimy and really kind of dark noir tinted, but always with kind of a element of weirdness to it mm-hmm. and sort of an avant kind of feel to it. And this one too, when it, it's like, it's already raw enough. And then they like, oh no, no, we're going to distort the vocals. So it, it even <laughs> sounds more kind of harsh and intense. Some of his stuff definitely reminds me of the clips and it's almost mm-hmm. like the white stripes and that they like, which is a funny comparison, but they limit their scope to like, I'm just going to talk about yeah. drug dealing. Yeah. This yeah. is it's, my, this is the only thing I'm going to talk about. skiing. You know, but I'm going to see what I can do within that How that, many that metaphors framework. can I do that involve snow? And, and he definitely finds different places to go. Well, it's that. the details too. He talks about like, my jeans look dirty. You know, just little right. elements of kind of like, you know, giving you a real sense of kind of this. When those, that's what those guys do. It's like they've been doing it so long and they continue to find a way it's like microtonal rapping or something right. where they continue to find a way to nuance the most basic thing, you know, over and over and over again. It's amazing. Yeah, which is why, yeah, why I think of the the white stripes because that's a big Jack White thing. Sometimes it's good to have limitations. Mm-hmm. You know, give impose limitations. It's much on harder yourself. to work yeah. within yeah. limits. You know, a Tin right. Pan Alley songwriter. It's 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 hard right. to be that. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, these are Tin Pan Alley drug dealers. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and with that, Brittany Spanos, John Dolan, thanks for coming. Thank thanks. you. Hey. And we're back. That was the Ramones, Blitzkrieg Bop. Today we're going to talk about the greatest punk albums of all time. I'm here with Liz Garber-Paul, one of the contributors in the list, and an assistant editor at Rolling Stone, contributing editor Rob Sheffield, and John Dolan, Record Views editor, who helped spearhead the list. Guys, what is punk? I'm just going to throw it open. Like, what, what is punk rock? Can we even try to answer that question? Well... The, I think one of the things this list shows is punk rock can be many things, and the variety of punk is kind of incredible when you think that it began sort of, especially in England with the Sex Pistols, is sort of a negation of what had come before it. And it was kind of this, some people thought, sort of nihilistic statement, but it exploded in so many different directions. So and, this and is the list of nothing. This is, is a, a lot of nothing. Yeah. Yeah. No, but it, it really goes, and even from the Sex Pistols on, in so many different directions in England right away. I mean, you have a band like Joy Division kind of making this art, goth, kind of glacial music that would inspire depressed people all over the world for generations. I've been waiting for a guy to come and take me by the have the jam looking back to the 60s and, and kind of mod culture and the kinks and the, and the, and the hooter right about their everyday life in London. You have the Slits, a legend pioneering all-female band mixing reggae and rock and singing about shoplifting. I mean, right off the bat, that's just the first couple of years, and you know, it, it, it spreads so quickly and it becomes so many things that the variety of punk is pretty amazing. How, so, how did we even put together this list, John? Like, you helped bring it together. You were the, the shepherd. Yeah, so. we all kind of a lot of a lot of meetings. Um, well, the main thing was our sort of sense of, along with having forty, you know classic essential records that really were, you know, great to listen to all the way through many, many times throughout your life. One of the things that came up was sort of talking about 
how would you, you know, if you wanted to explain someone learning about rock music and stuff, a teenager, a 15 year old, what would you, what records would you play her to say, hey, this is what this is? And this kind of tells the story of this music. And it's kind right. of ends up being sort of two stories. One is what happens in England after the Sex Pistols, this explosion of culture. It was probably the biggest thing to happen there since the Beatles. And it creates all these responses. And the opposite kind of happens in America. It's almost the inverse, where you have the Ramones come out and it's this monu monumental record, but it does not have a lot of commercial impact at all. It kind of, the music goes deep underground. It becomes hardcore punk, and you have bands like Minor Threat and the Bad Brains and Black Flag. And that grows on its own terms with really no one looking at it and turns into kind of bands like, uh, records like Zen Arcade by Husker Du, which is a double album, uh, psychedelic sort of rock opera, or uh, Double Nickels on the Dime by the Minutemen, which is combining folk and punk and jazz and leftist politics and sort of conversational uh, sloganeering or, you know, and into, and then it sort of grows and grows and becomes eventually this Kurt Cobain in Aberdeen, Washington decides, what if I combine this with metal? What if what if there was a band that sounded like the Pixies and maybe Led Zeppelin? And then it becomes, it explodes 15 years after it happens. And so then we have Green Day and we even have Blink-182. So there's kind of two different narratives that happen that kind of tell the story of this music. What you just said seemed like what was key, I think. Like we focused on actual, it sounds obvious, but actual great albums. Like over, you know, we, we focused on like, these are albums that we actually would, play for someone who didn't know anything about punk as opposed to, say, the Angry Samoans album, which was maybe important for six months and was a important you know, piece of the narrative in a certain world in punk. It, would you say that was... Is that Yeah, we just... You know, we wanted to think of it almost not just the story, but kind of like map points. You know, it's like... It's true, like the Circle Jerks and the Angry Samoans and some of these bands, you know, were definitely had their moments or fear or whatever, or the adolescence for a song or two or whatever, and they made good albums. But, you know, we, we only had 40, and so we wanted to have it be the greatest, and we wanted it to be a list that could, could show you all the things that could happen with this music. Rob and Liz, you guys wrote a lot of these blurbs and listened to a lot of punk rock. What were the, was there an album that was like your favorite album to go back to? It was like, oh my God, I can't believe I haven't listened to this in 10 years. This is great. I hadn't listened to Devo in a long time, and I kind of forgot, given that when you think of Devo, you don't necessarily think of kind of their new wave and very strange roots. You might think Absolutely, of yeah. more their kind of 80s mainstream success. Um, so it was great going back and listening to that. and uh, That album kicks butt. Yeah, yeah, just remembering how weird it is. Yeah. And, and going back and reading a little bit more about its history and kind of the way it came together as more of an art project than an actual band. Should we go through some of the, the top five? Number one is the Ramones, the Ramones' first album. Those guys were pretty good. Anybody want to talk about why they're number one? The Ramones kind of is sort of not just being the ground zero moment for American punk, but it's such a great album to listen to, and they were, they were onto so much, kind of combining pop culture and their love of 60s music and bubblegum music and pairing music down to the spare raw essentials at a time when that was not what was going on in music. And people really didn't know what to think of it. There's a Steve Albini um, who went on, formed a punk band in the 80s, Big Black, and produced Nirvana and the Pixies. He said, when I first heard that, he was growing up in Montana, he said, when I first heard it, I thought it was the funniest record in the world. I, you know, I'd hear Beat on the Brand. It seemed like a novelty album. It seemed hilarious to me. Two weeks later, I thought it was the best record in the world. It kind of comes up on you and seeks up on you, and it's, and it's just this magical thing. And it sort of is the fundamental thing of New York punk, which is the kind of the beginning of punk in the U.S. And, and inspired a lot of the things that happened in England, too. It also was so simple and inspired so many kids to go out and start making that kind of music. Because before that, you know, when 
when the Ramones like kind of were approaching making this band, music had started going off the rails a little bit where people were getting really experimental and having really long songs and they just went back and yeah, stripped it all down. And when they started going on tour, you know, they'd go through towns and then they'd come back a year later and all of a sudden there would be all these new bands that were using that kind of, not formula necessarily, but, you know, taking three chords and turning it into something totally different and totally new. Yeah, they're, they're like the epitome of that old, like, Velvet Underground line where, you know, there are only a thousand people were at, you know, their first show, but, like, you know, half of them started bands. I mean, yeah. the Ramones were definitely one of those bands, for sure. Okay, second album, number two, The Clash. Their first album from 1977. Like, why that and not, like, uh, London Calling? Does anybody want Rob, do you have a... I mean, there are well over 40 records that could be on the list. Right, right. I mean, why not Sandinista, dude? (laughs) Just side three. I would have gone for that. Side six. That's the one. That's the one. It's weird. The Clash, in terms of... It's weird when you think about albums that would be much more famous if they didn't have the same name as the band. Ah. I think The Clash the Clash, and the first Led Zeppelin album are the top two for me. Those are albums that are because they share the same name as the band. So when you talk about The Clash or Led Zeppelin, you're clearly talking about a band. You have to add some sort of fumbling That's parenthetical. That's so true. I never the thought of that. I mean, Led album. Zeppelin, you could at least say one, In Led Zeppelin of, one. But The Clash, they didn't even have that. No, and it's really weird that that for a record that, I mean, it sounds crazy that there used to be a common debate over what The Clash's best album was, whether it was The Clash or London Calling, and the title in part, you know, London Calling is a great title and The Clash is a terrible title. The title put it over the top, right? Yeah, (laughs) and it's strange, and also because uh, The Clash's first album has such a crazy history in terms of it came out in the U.K., in 1977, and the American record company did not think it was worth the trouble of releasing, and so they put it on the shelf for two years. And in the meantime, The Clash recorded all these great singles and another album, so by the time that the American record company got to releasing The Clash in the US, they had cut four of the songs and then added a bunch of the singles. Changed the order around? Yes, And, uh, and actually made it a better album in doing so, but that means that there are two very distinct albums called The Clash. So I don't even know which one is the one that... that, that Just get both of them. It's weird because the two, it wouldn't be that hard to, to put them together into you know, one album. But even the, the U.S. edition, which was the first one a lot of us heard, that's, that's a really long record. You know, they, yeah. they really, they made up for not releasing it earlier by putting just a lot of stuff on it. In general, like I like the songs that they added better than the ones they cut, but it, it's a it's a situation where that shows the state of the music at the time that an album this this passionate and raw and intense and hugely influential from the get go could sit on the shelf for a couple of years because they they didn't think it was worth releasing in America. Well, another example of that which you talk about in the in the blurb you wrote is the X Ray Specs album, which oh came, came out in 1979, right? And like. People was a cassette tape, and the, did it did it get reissued until like the '90s? I mean, like yeah, not until '91. Yeah, and like 91, '92. It's such an immediately 
great record and so yeah. defines what UK punk could be. And and it's just, and like you say, like the Beastie Boys and people would, you know, like just in the kind of underground scene who knew enough about it. But 12 years is a long time. I mean, you know, these days things, like even three years, it's 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 incredible to think that it's a, it's a lifetime in culture now. And it took that long and it was just because no one had, no one would put it out. It's really kind of amazing. Yeah, it's kind of a synecdoche of, of how... Uh Punk rock is, is that? Am I using synecdoche right? Uh, I think so. I, yeah, I, I think uh, yeah. it's a synecdoche. Uh, I would call it a synecdoche for, uh, <laughs> for punk rock in miniature. That that this record comes out in London, does not get released in the USA, and it passes hands. It's taped from hand to hand. It's not like the kind of thing where you could even buy a copy of it. It was absolutely impossible to find. The first time I heard the X-Ray Specs album, it was 1986. I was visiting a friend in college at Oberlin, and his roommate, who I never met, his housemate, just had a crate of records in the living room, and I was flipping through her records, and I was like, oh, my God, she has the X-Ray Specs album. I've wanted to hear this for years. I taped her copy, and... The second New York Dolls album on the other side, which was also completely oh unfindable at the time. And it was just a matter of to hear this record, you had to be in the right room at the right time with a working tape deck and, and a housemate who was willing to trust records in the middle of the <laughs> living room. And for a lot of these records, but for punk rock in general, it was something that was a secret handed from friend to friend for such right. a long time. Right. And you really had to sort of happen to run into the right people. And have they been like you could get sent down wrong lanes too a little bit sometimes, but like I remember I did a, interviewed the guy in the band Cloud Nothings, and he's like I think was 22 or 23, and they're a good sort of you know no, noisy punk band, and he was this is a few years ago, and he, and I'm like you know how long did it take you to learn about this stuff? He's like oh about two hours. You know, I just jumped on, and there we go. And I was like, I heard one day of the clash, and next thing I knew, I had it all. And it was just like, a, you know, maybe not that quick, but like, but he was pretty much like, yeah, it was fast. It's like it's easy these days, and sort right. of that that sort of process of learning about these things is just, you know, was a real kind of. what it was looking back, it was fun. It was frustrating at the time, but it was fun in retrospect. I mean, it's we better now that you can hear this, but um, but it's it's amazing how something like like that record or any number of other records. You know, Pink Flag wasn't released in the the Wire album yeah. that's also in the top five. Uh, wasn't and an album like Damaged by Black Flag, which came out and was hugely impactful in hardcore scenes, but you know was completely wiped out off the face of the earth by the major label that was entrusted with distributing it. A lot of these records they were designed to go down the tubes historically, and the fact that they just you heard them and they meant something to you and you passed them on. What you said about you know people hearing the Velvet Underground and starting their own bands, that definitely goes with X-Ray Specs in terms of almost everybody who heard it taped it for like 20 of their friends. Right. Because uh, it was a record that had such an amazing, just an amazing impact right away. Right. Let's talk about the Stooges a little bit because we agonized a little bit about whether oh, the Stooges are really uh, pre-Ramones. The Ramones might have been like, we were thinking about the Ramones being a, you know just the starting point of this list. And then we were just like, oh my God, we can't leave off the, the Stooges fun house. No! There's a historian once wrote that even revolutionaries like to have ancestors. And so, like, we wanted to put in some of the bands like the Stooges and Patti Smith and the New York Dolls and that kind of, you know, are punk in, already punk in spirit and then kind of sowing the ground for these other bands to happen. It's hard to imagine music happening without them. And at the same time, with a lot of bands who kind of, 
interestingly, sort of the television starts off as a punk band. By the time they actually make their album, they sound like something completely different. like this mystical kind of urban landscape guitar band with this surrealistic poetry that like, you know, they started off playing pretty pretty much garage rock, but like the, the times, and the same thing maybe with Joy Division a little bit too, when they get in the studio, kind of things start to happen. But with those bands, even if an album like Patti Smith's Horses doesn't strike you as being as punk as like Black Flag, it's all, it's all unthinkable without it. Right. And I think just the Ramones in general were unthinkable without Iggy and the Stooges, because that was part of how they came together when they were kids. They were the weirdos that liked Iggy Pop, and it was a, a special and you know unique thing to even know about that, and then to like it, and that's how they came together as friends and started you know collaborating on music, and so without Iggy, they might not have ever you know Johnny and Joey might not have ever met each other. Yeah, for sure, yeah, and that goes back to the mythical like what a fifteen-year-old you're trying to introduce to punk, which we kept in mind with this, because at the end of the day, we just decided that there's no way you can actually talk about punk rock without having someone listen to the Iggy and the Stooges, and it just got silly to, to leave them off. Rob, do you have a favorite album on this list? Oh, is my there, Is gosh. there one album that you would point people to? And I, let's, we'll go around. Well, I want to ask everybody this. So many that I love. You know, the one that jumps out as, as the emotional favorite right away is the White Long album, just because it's the newest. The newest, And the yes. whole reason that this stuff matters is because it's about right now that the young bands everywhere are taking inspiration from this sound. And, you know, like John said, it, you know, this list is kind of a map, and the, the map goes all sorts of places. And White Long are an example of a band that's, you know, right now making their, their best records they're, they have a new album that's coming out that's absolutely fantastic. It's even better than Deep Fantasy, the one on the list. It just isn't out yet. But Do you to want me, to tell people anything more about White Lung or like where yeah, they're from? Uh, yeah, they're from uh, Vancouver. They're basically like four kids from the Vancouver boho punk indie squatting random debris scene. And they are an extraordinarily powerful band with uh, Mish Way is the singer. And she's got a real like Stevie Nicks Patti Smith kind of howl in her voice. And they're a fantastic live band, an absolutely ferocious live band who make ferocious records. It's inspiring that a band like this can make such a, a, an immense racket, taking so many different kinds of inspiration from so many different points in, uh, on the rock and roll map. Yeah, All if right. we would have kept going, you know, if we would have kept going for, you know, there there is true. It's like so many bands now, like a band like um, Royal Headache, or a band like Ought, who sound a lot like like some of the '70s kind of jerky post punk. Like there's just it's so many things happening now that sort of fit into this and, and and call back to it. And it's funny how punk goes through eras of being rediscovered. You know, in the early O's, there was this sort of post punk revival they called it. With and the, we have the Yeah Yeah Yeahs on here, and there was bands like the Liars and the Rapture, looking back to the Gang of Four. And then there's other eras where it's sort of the more like when in the early '90s when Pavement was around, they kind of look back to bands like the Minutemen and the Swell Maps, who kind of had a collapse idea about what it was going to be. And so it's fun to see the waves and waves of influence come and go over over decades as this music continues to just inspire people. Liz, do you have a favorite album on this? Oh, man. Yes. Uh, the two that I listen to still on a regular basis would probably be uh, Richard Hell and the Voidoids. 
And then also Buzzcock singles going steady, which is just always like if you need motivation on any particular day, like just <laughs> blasting that like can kind of get you out of the house. Absolutely, yeah. Well, you tried it just for once, find it all right for kicks. But now you find out that it's a habit that sticks and you're on all gasmatics. Probably my favorite on here just is, you know, as far as albums that have, you know, got the ball rolling for getting into different kinds of music would be uh, the Bikini Kill singles collection, which I was really psyched to see included on here because when that was introduced to me by, you know, my brother's friend's girlfriend or whatever, when we were 12, you know, playing with tapes in the living room, I had never heard women be that angry on, on tape before. And it was really freeing. And then kind of from there, you know, you find, you go back and you go forwards. And I found, you know, Bratmobile and stuff kind of in Slater Kinney going forward. And then you go back a little bit and find the slits and the clash. And so that was kind of my entry point. So I think that's probably still my favorite. Kathleen Hanna of Bikini Kill still making good. She's got a new record. Her other one of her following bands, Julie Ruin, has a new record coming out soon, and her just put out a new single called "I Decide." It's a great song, and she still continues to be vital all these years later. When when, when you might first maybe the Bikini Kill at the time would have sounded like kind of like they're going to make a couple singles yep. and just tell you you know have a revolutionary moment, and then sort of maybe you know, and that she's endured now and still making good music twenty five years later. We'll end with you. Do you have a favorite album on this? I guess it's tough because, like you're saying, there's so many things, but I guess I would probably say um, either Double Nickels on the Dime by the Minutemen or Zen Arcade. They're very similar. They came out the same year on the same label. Zen Arcade by Who's Gonna Do. By Who's Gonna Do. Sorry, they're both double albums, and they both sort of... No push. fair, you're picking double albums. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I, can, I, have, can I have four? Can I have four picks? <laughs> um, but Zen Arcade, I think, just like... I don't know if you guys remember this when you get these records and you and you kind of have maybe heard another record they've done, but you just have this idea in their mind what they're going to be like, and it's always so different, and it always just shocks you. And I remember just getting that record, and 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 it's, it starts off with bang, 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 and then it gets into this really hard sort of difficult second side, and then it, you come out of that into this, and it's a, you go on the journey. The stories, of, the records about Akito goes on a journey. He leaves home, uh, like a broken home, and tries to find himself in the city, and you go through the record and have that experience, and it's very Tommy-like, but it's like within this hardcore punk context, and it's so catchy, and it's so punishing, and it just is a cathartic time. Every time you put it on, you're like, I feel like I'm having the same experience I had when I was a kid every time I put it on. What more can you ask for? <laughs> All right. Well, uh, anything we didn't cover? What's your favorite side of Double Nickels on the Dime? I think I like... The sprawling masterwork yes. Minuteman yeah. double yeah. album. I, I think, because, well, as, as, as someone who had it on cassette... Oh, it was uh, awesome. What the sides were. <laughs> I like the, the, the part that goes from My Heart in the Real World to, you know, that, and I like, you know, two beats at the end, that little area in there. Just like and a then soup also with a lot of bass. Yeah, coming up, <laughs> I mean, you know, um, and then towards the end when it's Dr. Wu and the, the way that comes out. Don't seem right. Well, I've been strung out here all night. But the thing about listening to these records, like, you know, we, as rock critics, like, we, we all listen to so much music, and it's a lucky job to get to have, and we, you know, but there is sort of a sense of, like, you know, 
I don't know, like Tuesday, it must be like Maddie and Tay or whatever. But you go back to these records that you listen to, and it's like you're home again, and it's so much fun. So, I mean, with a record like that, it's like just the experience of being inside it again for after a long time of, of I haven't listened to it for, I don't know, five or six years maybe. How often do you, I mean, I remember you wrote a great thing once. It was like, it's never a bad day to listen to the Minutemen. Then you don't do it for a while, Whoa, and you forget. I said that. Yeah. It's absolutely true. It's, it's, it's funny, I mean, just, and also you're talking about the period of discovery. It's funny that Husker Du and the Minutemen, although they sound nothing like each other, they were both bands that I found out about just from reading Peter Buck's interviews. That, <laughs> That's right. That oh, yeah, the embarrassment. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> like that there were these people, you know, who kept proselytizing for this music and spreading the word. I mean, Peter Buck of R.E.M. and R.E.M. in general being like key people, you know, Kurt Cobain being another one. He brought the Minutemen on tour, yeah. yeah. The whole thing that there was this, music that survived not because anybody was hyping it or because anybody was building workable infrastructures behind it, but because it really mattered to people who passed it on to other people. And that's really, that's what the passion of punk rock is all about. Peter Buck would almost sound like guilty when he'd bring these bands up, like, don't listen to us, listen yeah. to the individuals, listen amazing. to Pylon. Yes, and, and, and he would just say, you know, ah, oh, you know, I don't think we're that great songwriters, <laughs> you know, compared to, you know, like, and then he'd list the, the replacements the same way. Yep. In terms of bands sort of giving each other a boost up once they had, you know, made a step up the ladder that, I mean, that's part of the punk rock process. And part of it is that it goes both ways that, you know, bands pay tribute to the younger bands who are coming along and, and the younger bands pay tribute to the, the older bands. It's just kind of a circular thing. I, I don't think that's I can... That's a synecdoche I, as well. <laughs> we're going to end with a Two circle of life. I don't think we could do better than that. I think that's an excellent... <laughs> To a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, John Dolan, Rob Sheffield, Liz Garber Paul, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. That was Dream Police by Cheap Trick, new Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductees. I'm here with Andy Green. Hi. Hey, Andy. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you. <laughs> Andy good. just wrote an excellent feature on Cheap Trick in the magazine and on rollingstone.com. Can we just take a break and just talk about Cheap Trick for a little bit, how great they are? Yeah, I think they're one of the most underappreciated bands in the history of rock. I mean, they've been killing it for 45 years. They have no Grammys. They they, they won virtually nothing ever. And they, they still have to tour, yeah. presumably, I, I, unless they're doing it just for fun, and they're yeah. out there killing it. Yeah, they've been doing the show now for so many years that they've just perfected it. They're one of the greatest live acts I've ever seen, and I've seen a lot of bands, but they are just incredible. We were just talking about how they were definitely the highlight of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uh, induction ceremony the other other day. Right. I think they put them on last because they knew that it was impossible to uh, top them. It was a can't-fail situation. Rick Nielsen was throwing picks out to the the well-heeled crowd. Right. It was just a, a... Joyful thing, for sure. Yeah, I think Surrender is possibly one of the best rock songs that that, was, that's, that has ever been written. It's as perfect a rock song as I've ever heard. I'm not going to argue. Tell me about your story. Tell me where you caught up with them first before we get into the reader mail. Sure. I was in Nashville for the day with them. They signed to Big Machine Records, which is sort of weird because that's where Taylor Swift is signed. Yeah, this is so this is the, the record right. label based in Nashville owned by Scott Borchetta, yeah. best known for kind of like really pop country hits, including Taylor Swift, of course. Yeah, 
but Taylor and other stuff like that has pulled so much money into the label that he's able to sort of do what he wants now. And he's and, a cheap trick super, super fan and sign them. You know, he's not thinking that a new cheap trick album will make him millions of dollars, but he wants them to be on a proper label. It's been 22 years. Their last three records were these independent things that were great albums, but they were but they got no marketing, they got no distribution. So he just hated seeing his favorite band. This guy Scott wither. Porchetta has yeah. a real plan for them. He's not just yes. hiring them just to have them in his stable. So we might right. be seeing more of Cheap Trick over the yeah. next few years, which is a good yeah. thing. And part of his thing was he wanted to get them into the Hall of Fame. So he lobbied very hard for that. And he signed them to his label. He got them to do a CMT Crossroads event that I watched them rehearse for, which had Jennifer Nettles, which just exposes them to a very different audience. And I sort of watched that with them. And we had dinner that night. Then about a week later, I was in Rockford, Illinois. I was at Rick Nielsen's house, which is amazing. It's like a private cheap trick museum. He has over 200 guitars in his basement. Does he have a separate Cheap Trick memorabilia wing, or is it kind of spread out throughout the it's house? It's sort of the basement. The first floor is like his wife's floor. He's, he's married the same woman for 46 years. Which is which awesome. Which is almost a, a new rock and roll record. I think Charlie Watts possibly was before that. I think so. Okay. I think he's been with his wife for over 50 years. But it's pretty incredible. But the basement is just Rick's own, and it's nothing but Cheap Trick artifacts and pictures and everything. It's incredible. And we hung out for hours and hours and hours, and he showed me everything. We watched videos. He's a really talkative, funny guy. So he's a very, he's just, a, he's a great interview. They also got some love recently from Dave Grohl, who featured them in his uh, Sonic Highways HBO series uh, in 2015, I think, or maybe, no, 2014, a couple years ago, 2014. Yeah. No, it's been a very good few years for them. It just shows that if you're great and you keep plugging away at it, then eventually, like, the public They'll come back to you. Well, all right. Well, let's get into some reader mail. I'm going to read a comment from somebody named Charlie Waffles, uh-huh. the username Charlie Waffles. Okay, Charlie says, I wish the original four band members could get along and play together. I would also like to read more about the band suing Epic Records. Mm-hmm. I do not know the story yeah. behind that. Uh, yeah. Okay, well, well, quickly, why don't we say why well, Bunny Carlos, the original drummer, is no longer with the band. Andy, can you quickly, can you tell us why? Yeah, it's sort of a sad state of affairs. Bunny Carlos is an amazing drummer and a key part of their sound, but they're just there were real personality conflicts for years. And th- and through the entire nineties to the mid two thousands, there was lots of tension. He insisted their sets be just one hour and the same hits and in, in, in the same order and he didn't like their last few albums and it was just they weren't getting along at all. You don't see that many cases of the like the drummer being the tyrant in the band. Yeah, that well, seems like a unique thing. It's sort of. I think that in any band, the person the most difficult, the most unwilling to do stuff, becomes the one that holds the cards. And he was just kind of uh. controlling them. And they didn't want to break up the core four. It was the same four founding members of the band, which is pretty rare. But they started doing these Sgt. Pepper shows in Las Vegas in, like, 2007 or something where they played the album straight through. Hmm. And the money was very good. And there's some connection to it because they were produced by George Martin and Bun and Rick played on the Eve sessions for Double Fantasy. People used to call yeah. them, right, the, the American Beatles? Yeah, and right. they loved the Beatles. They were Beatles influence. They had George Martin serve as a producer. So they were doing these huge Vegas shows. So they would they would do Sgt. Pepper straight through, and the money was great. But they started to get a bit sick of it. They got an offer to do 100 more of them, and Robin just wanted to do 50, 
and Bond and Robin got into a screaming fight. I think Robin had uh, kids at home, yeah, young children at home. Yeah, he, he had young kids. Time. Yeah. And they got in a horrible fight. They don't agree on what happened. You know, when you talk to them both, the story varies. But point is, as that, will happen, as will happen, that they pushed Bunny Carlos out. He sued them. It got really, really, really ugly. And now Rick Sundax plays drums, who's fantastic. All right, but Bunny Carlos did get back with them for the Hall of Fame yes, uh, that, ceremony and played with them. That and was that very was, cool. That was nice it, to see. It was it was particularly cool because that will definitely be the last time that they ever played together. All right. So, if you say so. I say um, so. Okay. Well, let's also let's yeah. talk about the uh, the band suing Epic Records. Yeah, I think part of the reason why Cheap Trick didn't get as big as they could have gotten is because they had bad management. They went through a series of really bad managers that only ended like five years ago. But the managers in super late '70s, when they put out the live at Budokan record, which was their big breakthrough. They sort of advised them to sue their label to get more royalties, and I'm sure that they were being somewhat screwed. But suing your current label when you're working on new albums with them is a big mistake. So they feel now. They said in hindsight it was a huge mistake because they were working on the next album and they were putting it out in the midst of this lawsuit. So they felt that to get revenge, they feel that the label purposely tanked the album. That because, they, yeah. yeah, I mean, it makes perfect sense. I mean, if you're yeah. suing the label that you're on, the label yeah. basically holds all the cards. Yes. They can put out your album. They decide how hard to promote your album. Right. And it sort of ruined them that they were this huge band following Budokan, and that was 79, and by 80, 81, it was sort of over. And it was over because back in those days, if your label didn't promote the album, if they didn't distribute it, then you were dead. Right. And they died. And by the mid-'80s, they were opening for Ario Speedwagon. I mean, it all fell off hard, and they sort of pinpoint that lawsuit as sort of a major moment of just stupidity. Right. Okay, here's a comment from a gentleman named Mark Mormon. Mm-hmm. Interesting article, yeah. but Surrender is from their third album, Heaven Tonight, and yeah. not from the Budokan album. Surrender mm-hmm. was a charting single and a big FM hit in 1978 prior to the Budokan album being released in the U.S. Yeah. Uh, did Mark get you, Andy? Mark did not get me. Oh. I did not say that Surrender first appeared on Budokan. I said after it was on the Budokan album, which was very popular as an import for many, many months, it started to get lots of airplay. So I in no way said that that was the first time that surrender was put out. I was merely saying it was the live version that became famous. And you hear it on the radio. It became so famous the Beastie Boys sampled the introduction. This next song is our new single. This next song is the first song on our our new new album. album. Exactly. Yeah, which was the introduction to the live surrender you always heard on the radio, the point the Beastie sampled it. And that was, they sampled it for uh, Jimmy James, right? On Check Your Head. I believe so. You're the Beastie's expert. Uh, The point being that I made that it's possible I didn't say surrender was first on Heaven Tonight, but I certainly am aware of that. Okay. (laughs) But thank you, Mark. Better luck next time. Uh, Okay. Here's an accusation against the Smashing Pumpkins by a commenter named Wiseacre. The Smashing Pumpkins stole Trick's song Ooh La 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 to form Cherub Rock. What do you think of that, Andy? I'm I'm not super aware of that Cheap Trick song, but I know that Billy Corgan is a huge Cheap Trick fan. He's from Chicago. You know, he's been a fan his whole life. He's played with them. His father has played with them, I believe. Maybe we'll just let the listeners decide on this one. How about we just play a little bit of each... Yeah. Uh, here's a little bit of uh, ooh la la. And here's a little bit of Cherub Rock by the Smashing Pumpkins. You decide. Yeah. 
Here's a comment from a commenter named Get to Work People. What other band does 150 shows in a year? Yeah, there's very few bands that work as hard as these guys do. I mean, it's incredible to do 150, and some of those aren't even public. They do private shows as well. They'll do cruise ships. They'll do anything. They're, I mean, in fairness, there are, there are a lot of bands out there that do as that many shows, but maybe yeah. not as many bands at Cheap Tricks level, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, there are baby bands that do over 200. I'm sure 21 Pilots even that are a huge band. And working uh, will musicians. Do, will do even right. more, yeah. But a sort of a band of people that have been around for 50 years almost that still tour at this level is very rare. Because even Bob Dylan, who's a touring fiend, will do like 90 shows a year. And that's right. a, a lot. Right. We're going <laughs> to end with a note from a commenter named Magic Jesus. Bill Ward and Bunny Carlos will have their revenge! <laughs> exclamation point, exclamation point. Bill Ward's the drummer for Black, Black Sabbath. Sabbath who got yeah. kicked out. Yeah. Is that going to happen? Well, I think that they are two very different circumstances, and both are awesome drummers. They added a lot to the band. With Bill Ward and Black Sabbath, it was more like he wouldn't sign a contract they gave him. He was not very healthy. He couldn't have gone on that tour. Where Bunny Carlos was capable of the shows, he was just they, – they saw him as such an asshole that they couldn't work with him. Right, right. But – I do agree. I am with Magic Jesus. Both are both are better bands when it's the four core members. Even though I love Dax Nielsen, he's he's an awesome and drummer. I still that most fans still love Bun, and we're very happy to see him back in. And thanks to commenters like Magic Jesus, Jesus. they are having their revenge. They are still part of the conversation. Yeah, and the fans are obsessed with both these people, and it's a huge bummer that. You know, because they're two of my favorite bands, and they're both touring now with the three of the four members while the drummer sits at home. You know, right. and it's not ideal. But right. It happens. It's not ideal. No. But we'll take it. Yes, we will. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, Andy Greed, thanks so much for coming on. No problem. And that's going to be it for Rolling Stone Music Now. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I uh, encourage you to check out Andy's full story on rollingstone.com or in the latest issue. Thank you. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.